You're listening to a live recording from Westside Church in Bend, Oregon. Thanks for joining us. So it set off this chain reaction, this like leave Twitter moment. So there was like this movement, leave Twitter. And people were doing it for all kinds of reasons. But I read this article in the New York Times. It's by columnist Pamela Paul. That was super interesting. Uh, It's an article titled Goodbye to You. Uh, And here's what she says about this Twitter moment. She says, yes, we know the discourse on Twitter is vile. Yes, we know that people who are delightful in real life metamorph into uh, online reactionary trolls and virtue uh, signaling vigilantes. Yes, the social media landscape is populated by basement dwellers and Russian bots. Yes, everyone is terrible on Twitter, she says. But I left for a different reason. I left because I am terrible on Twitter. I may not be the only one, but Twitter me is petty, insecure, desperate to please, angry, narcissistic, and needy. She ends her article with this thought, is it possible that on Twitter, we all become the worst version of ourselves? Now, I don't have any reason to believe that Pamela Paul is a Jesus follower and the likelihood that she's been tuning into Westside, kind of tracking our formation series is low to very low possibility. Um, But Pamela, if you're watching, welcome. We're so glad you're here. But she is speaking to something that we're leaning into, and that is that as human beings, we are formed, we are shaped, we are cultivated by the things around us, what we set in front of us, what we consume, the environments we enter into. They shape us. Last week, uh, Pastor Bo started off uh, this new series on spiritual formation, and now that, that phrase, spiritual formation, might be um, unknown to you, but if you grew up in the church, there's a very similar idea. It's called sanctification, um, very similar to spiritual formation. And is this idea that at the time we say yes to Jesus, we make the decision to say yes to Jesus, we enter into a journey, a process where we hold up the person of Christ, the word of God, and the Holy Spirit to be the thing that shapes us and forms us into Christ-like people. That is the process of spiritual formation. It's a process we enter into. And quite frankly, we're swimming upstream. We are swimming upstream. There are a lot of forces that shape and cultivate and form non-Christ-likeness in us. That's what our friend Pamela is talking about. She was shaped. She could tell the kind of person she was, things she said, her attitude, her, her being was being formed in this specific environment. And so she chose to get out, shut that off and get out. And what we want to talk about today is just as Twitter can be an example of forming us into hyper-opinionated and petty, narcissistic people, we can reverse that. We can change trajectory. It's called the way of Jesus. And it is a way we enter into and be formed into Christ-likeness. And that is the journey we go on with Jesus. That at the end of our lives, 
day after day, week after week, month after month of setting our eyes on Jesus that we become more gracious. We become radically forgiving. We become uncompromisingly gracious, just, patient, joyful even, peacekeepers. Some of that sounds like me some of the time. A lot of that sounds like me not often. And this is the process I enter into that as I pursue after Jesus, these things are actually formed in me. I become more Christ-like. So for the next five weeks, we are looking at some of these areas that we will be shaped and formed in here at the church. Um, We're starting today with the transforming of our mind. The way we think, the way we think about ourselves, the way we think about God, and how that shapes the way we think about the world around us. Then we're going to talk about our will, our character, and then our bodies, our social dimension. And finally, our soul, how our soul is formed into Christ-likeness. And I want to say this, this takes time and intention. It takes time and intention to walk in the way of Jesus. It must be purposeful. Today, we're focusing on the transformation of our mind. Second only to scripture, the guiding kind of focus of this series is Dallas Willard's classical book, Renovation of the Heart. If you haven't read it, I suggest it. It's weighty, it's a bit academic, but it is like a goldmine of thoughts on spiritual formation. Here is Willard's definition of the spiritual formation of our thinking. He says, the intention to be formed is to have the great God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ as a constant presence in our minds. A constant presence in our minds. Crowding out every other false idea or destructive image, all misinformation about God and every crooked inference or belief. It happens when we invite Jesus to be present in our minds, in our thinking. And if what scripture says about the tendency to be shaped in our thinking is true, and we get conformed by all of these forces around us, and it's so clear that the New York Times can write an article telling us this is happening in real time, then we should take seriously what God says about us what he says about himself, right? Dallas Willard says one of the most important ways that we allow Jesus to be present in our thoughts, in our minds, to take up some headspace and push out the non-Jesus stuff, one of the most important ways we do that is taking seriously God's word. He says the most obvious thing we can do is to draw certain key portions of scripture into our minds and make them a part of the permanent fixture of our thoughts. Think of it, it's like the pillars that hold up a cathedral. There are few things that keep that thing standing. There's a lot of decoration, a lot of beauty and space, but there are a few things that hold it up. And Willard is saying, what are the pillars that are holding up your thinking? He says this is a primary discipline for the thought life. Centering on God's word, letting it be a permanent fixture in our thoughts. If we're going to correct our thoughts into the way of Jesus, we need to take seriously and chew on, chew on what God says about himself, the world, and us. 
Romans 12.2 says this, Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, when I hear someone say, Romans 12.2 says, My attention span, volume, like interest all go down. Just, I'm just being really honest. I'm a pastor, you guys, and this is true. I grew up every, almost every Sunday in the church. I went to a Christian high school. I went to a Christian college. And I've been in basically around ministry in some way, shape, or form my entire professional life. So when someone says, Romans 12, 2 says, heard it. It's stitched on pillows. It's on the posters in the hallway. It's on that guy's bumper sticker who just cut me off. Like, who cares? Who cares? And what I, what I want to say to you is like scripture can, and as we're thinking, processing our thinking, scripture can be like the billboards on the highway as we are cruising through life. Like saw it, not sure what it said. think there was a hotel involved. Moving on. I got places to be. We blow through these things. And so today we're going to pause and we're going to chew a little bit. Eugene Peterson says that we should treat scripture like a dog treats a bone. We should chew on it over and over and over until we get into the marrow that's on the inside of it. Break that sucker open. There's good stuff in there. But we got to chew. We got to learn how to chew. So today as we chew on Romans 12, 2... We're going to pull out two specific words in, in this piece of pasture, uh, pa- pasture. passage. It says, uh, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let's pull out conformed and transformed. What does it mean? Let's chew on it. What does it mean to be conformed? What does it mean to conform? The word picture is like the dunes in the desert. They're so passive. They're so passive. The sand just shows up. It has no intention or direction. And the wind moves the dunes every day into a new shape, into a new space. They're shifting constantly. And the sand doesn't do anything about it. That is to be conformed is this passive posture. And I want to tell you guys, if we take this seriously, our role in the world right now, we got to be honest that the American church has been passive for so long. We have taken a passive posture. I'll, well, I'll be there. I'll be there Sunday. I hope Steve's funny. I hope Evan's inspirational. Ben, we don't worry about Ben. Just kidding. I love Ben. We take this passive posture, which means not just that we just sit there, but we are being shaped. We are, the forces are moving and we're being cultivated and formed by something. Conforming is allowing all of these other things to shape and form my thinking, my being, my body, my engagement. Transformed is not a passive word. Transformed is an active, engaged word. Think of the the transatlantic carriers, those giant ships that leave from from long distances and they set out and they don't say as they come out of the harbor, we'll we'll see where this one ends up. (laughs) We'll see where the ocean takes us today. 
They're going to get a bunch of stuff. No. They set off and they have a destination. And they have a trajectory. And every day they are moving, it is moving for a purpose to get to where they have set their trajectory to take them. It is an engaged, active word. Don't be conformed to the patterns of the world. Don't be passive and and let yourself be shaped by all these other things. Engage, church. Turn on. Power up. Engage to be Christ-like. This is the journey. This is what we all walk into when we say yes to Jesus. So we're going to... um, practice this engagement, this, this transformation of our minds. We're going to practice it this morning in two pieces of scripture, all right? Uh, Isaiah 64, 8 says, he says this, and we're, what we're doing with this is we're going to take what the word says and we're going to chew on it together, right? We're going to be uh, active, engaged in the transformational process. We're going to engage with it and just talk about what comes up as we chew on this. And then We'll look at another piece of scripture that is meant to inform the way we think about this passage. All right? So here we go. Isaiah 64, 8 says this. Yet you, Lord, are our father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. If you've been around Jesus stuff for very long, you've probably heard this or seen it stitched somewhere. It's a popular one. One of the things I love about the Bible is it can be so complex and so simple at exactly the same time. And it should, it is meant to mess with us. It's meant to turn soil, to break things up and turn it over to be cultivated. And Isaiah starts with this little phrase. He says, Lord, you are our father. Stop. Father language is tricky. Father language is tricky. Maybe you grew up in in a home where father to you brings up feelings of delight, of love. Maybe you'd say, my dad was so kind. He was so good. He was so present. My dad was my best friend. I hear people say that. Dad was my best friend. That's beautiful. It is awesome. It's how it should be. And I will say that is the minority of people's experience. I know because I sit with you guys. We process this together. And as you get into anyone's story, the father role is is so central to the way we see and think about ourselves. So most people would say father means fine, okay, hardworking, career-focused, provider, so not bad things, but is that it? And then in the worst cases, father's like a really abusive word. It's a harmful word. It means mean-spirited. Can you see if we just would let ourselves chew on these tiny little moments in Scripture And explore what is happening in my head when I read these things. If I actually don't pass it on the highway, but I chew it like a bone, what do I think about what this says? Lord, you are our father. Is that good? Is that a good thing? Are you a good father? Are you like that guy? (laughs) What does it mean? We need to chew it. 
Isaiah continues on and he, he says, we're clay and God's the potter. Well, he's forming us. That's cute. It's a cute idea. I feel like a lump of clay some days, just show up. But clay is a very passive thing, right? It doesn't fight the potter. It doesn't argue with the potter. If you sprinkled a little Imago Dei, like image of God on that clay, or, or better yet, like C.S. Lewis in uh, Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, Aslan breathes on these stone statues and turns out they're actually beings with thoughts and feelings. If that was the clay and that's us, we would ask for sure, does this guy know what he's doing? Is this an experience, Potter? Or, or is this like an ashtray or a teacup situation? Like what are we talking about with my life here? Do I trust you? Are you good? Are you good? Because that is the central question of this journey that should, if you let it be implanted as we process who we are, who God is, what is going on in the world, is God good is a central question to the human experience. It's so central that it is the first question we encounter in scripture. In Genesis, God has created this, uh, this garden and he walks in the cool of the night with Adam and Eve. It is this picture of just perfect presence and relationship. So accessible, so good. And it says that Satan enters the picture. And when you hear Satan, I don't want you to think of pitchfork and the, the horns and the red jumpsuit and like the weird beard. That's flush that. We made that, we made that up. Okay, <laughs> that's it's not a... Satan, it is the word Satan, and it means the accuser. The accuser steps into the garden. He deals in ideas. He deals in thoughts. He's not a warrior king that comes to fight for territory. This isn't Thor with his hammer who comes to battle God. He's a voice who asks, is God really good? He doesn't say God's bad. He just asks, is God really good? Did he really say that about you? Hmm. He's probably holding something back. I bet he's trying to trick you. Guys, at the center of like our world and being and spiritual life is a battle for what we believe about the character of God and who we are. What will, we, what will we allow to shape that way of thinking? That idea, is God good? Because it just, it is, we sang it just a second ago. Your love is a firm foundation I'll build my life upon. Will you? If he's good, do you believe he's good? So how do we know? What can we do? When Isaiah says, Lord, you're our father. Father's tricky. Is he a good father? And we're the clay in your shapingness. Do I trust the potter, quite honestly? Is God good? Willard, Dallas Willard would implore us to keep reading. Because scripture says that God was not content for us to just wrestle through these questions wasn't content to be far off and let us flounder. It says he moved into the neighborhood. That Jesus moved into the neighborhood. Jesus moved to Bend.
And this question of, is God good? Jesus answers. And he answers us in a story. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus is setting out to teach us to set our thinking on that important question, is God good? And he says, he tells us a story, which I love about Jesus. I love that he didn't go into theology. He told us a story. I'm not going to read it to you because I want you to hear it. And if you need to close your eyes, close your eyes. I'm just going to tell you a story shortly. Your Bible uh, has the header on this portion of scripture, Luke 15. It says the story of the lost son. But that was added later. It's not the story of a lost son. It's not even the story of two sons. It's the story of a very good father. It says this. It says that one son came to his father one day and he says, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead. Because if you were dead, I could have all the stuff that's coming to me when you actually do die. I wish I could just have my inheritance right, right now. And in the, for some reason we don't understand, the father says, okay, it's yours. Half of all, all I own, it's yours. And the son takes it, peace out, and he goes to Vegas. And he has a great time. <laughs> Women, alcohol, every pleasure. Front row seats at every Cirque de Soleil. He withholds nothing from himself. Every pleasure, every desire, everything. And it says that he burns through everything his father had given him. And at that moment, a, a famine, a drought comes to Vegas. Surprise. And the son ends up in the fields working. He's working with pigs, and that's significant. He's working with pigs. See, pigs in, in Hebrew culture was the most vile animal. It's dirty. It's unedible. It represents uncleanliness, ungodliness. It is like the lowest of the low. You can't even own pigs. And here he is living with them. He's so hungry, he would eat the pig's food if they would let him, but they won't. And this idea pops in his head. Well, my dad's, he's a successful guy. And the guys who work for him, they get three meals a day. I'm just going to go back. And he won't let me in the house, but he'll give me a job, I bet. So he practices his speech. Dad, I'm so sorry. I really messed up here. Uh, blew everything. And I uh, just want to work for you. And, and so he's, he's walking the road home. And he's practicing his speech. And maybe one of the most important pieces of scripture, Jesus tells us who God is. In this story, it says that the father, while his son was a long way off, his father saw him and he ran to him. It's the picture of this father sitting on his porch. Was it a month? Was it a year? Was it many years? We don't know. The father is waiting, watching the horizon line for any sign. 
And he, while he's a long way off, he doesn't wait for him to get there and grovel. He runs to him and he throws his arms around him and he kisses his face. And the son starts his speech. Hey, I'm sorry I messed up. And it says, father didn't even hear him, hear his words. Because he was already yelling to the crew back at home, fire up the barbecue. Get the music going. We're going to party. We're going to party. It says he puts a ring back on his finger, which is this representation of restoration. That he's back in the family. He, he hasn't lost anything. He's right where he was first. When he was born into that family, he's right back in that spot again. And they party. And they party. And it's such a good party that the second brother, who has been working all day in the field, he hears music. And he's on his way back and, and he sees one of the guys, the crew, and he's like, what's going on? He said, oh, your brother's back. Who? Your brother? No. And it says the brother, second brother is angry, righteous anger. And he stomps back to the house and he won't even go in. He's so angry. It says that the father, knowing his son is outside, leaves the party and he walks out to him. He says, son, come in. And the brother says, what are you thinking? This guy? This guy who blew all of our stuff, who soiled our name, who threw it in your face, this guy, you're throwing a party for him? I do everything around here. I do everything for you. You never threw a party for me. The father says to him, son, you don't understand. There's a bigger picture here. I love you and everything I have is yours and you are with me always, but your brother was dead and now he's alive. He was lost and he's come home. And why this story is so important, you guys, is because Jesus is telling us who God is. That question of is he good, he tells us who he is. And so as you go into your week, this week, in your marriage, in your parenting, in your work, with your neighbors, every part of your being has to filter through this story. When you are far gone and, and done the worst and lost everything and been flippant toward who God is, he runs, he is running to meet you. And in your worst times where you are self-righteous punk, he leaves and comes to you and invites you back. And we are both those things, you guys, in the same day, all the time. And he is gracious. And he says he's good. So then what will we believe? What will we think of this father? Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. I believe it is alive. And if we treat it as a living, breathing thing that wants to talk to us, God, um, it will transform every, 
every part of us. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room and those listening, Lord God, with the truth of your pursuit of your beloved. You call us your bride, that you are just infatuated with us. You love so deeply with the truth of that shape every other part of us, Lord. And the way we see ourselves as sons and daughters of this good, generous, kind, forgiving Father. And as we do that, Lord, would we be the presence of those things to everyone around us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.